Welcome to Episode 4 of the Dystopian Academy Podcast, talking about the Dystopian Wars game by War Cradle. My name is David Boren. If you have any questions, feedback, or an idea you'd like me to talk about in a future episode, you can contact me on Facebook in the Sturgenium Lounge Facebook group, which is the central place to discuss the game online. So I was planning to do kind of a bigger episode, and I had some experiments in mind. I was going to do different terrain trials with different amounts and report on the effects of that. Uh, A lot of ship comparisons. But then War Cradle decided to start releasing a whole series of Orbat updates. I decided to go ahead and cover those now, and then make next episode be more about the different experiments and features that I had been planning on. So first up, let's talk about the changes for the Commonwealth. The first one I want to discuss is the Railgun update. We've been waiting for this for some time now, seemingly forever, and now we've finally got it. So the weapon has lost piercing, which was the main problem that we had, and instead gained a new quality called Rail. This gives your target minus one armor and minus two citadel. Rail weapons can also see through the Empire's interface generator, and they link slightly better than before. Instead of uh, 8.2, it's now at 8.3. And again, when it's crippled, it's linking for two dice instead of one. The new Tri-Railgun also has extreme range, which allows it to shoot out to 40 inches, and has a price of 10 points rather than the old 12. But I think it's no longer something that you'd want to put on every ship. Under the original rules, you saw a lot of people trying to spam tri-rails, but this, I think, puts them in a more balanced place, and they do have some limitations where other weapons may be preferred. There's also been a change to the Moseski battle fleet. It used to say that if you had two units of Akronoplons, then they would get homing on their rocket batteries and heavy rocket batteries. Now you have to have two maximum size units of Akronoplons to get the bonus. It's a pretty nice bonus, but as we'll see when we talk about the Akronoplons, having two maximum size units is incredibly expensive, and the Akronoplons, at least right now, are a bit underwhelming. Now this does say Akronoplons, which means any kind of Akronoplon will work. Right now there's only one, the Stolotov. But there is room for more Akronoplon classes in the future. Some of those may be better. Some of those may be cheaper. We'll see what happens. There's also been a slight buff to the heavy rocket battery and rocket battery. These have gained one die each, making them a little bit more of a worthy weapon to use. However, because of this buff, the heavy rocket battery now costs three points instead of being a zero-point upgrade from heavy gun battery. We've also seen all of the Commonwealth flagships get a Citadel buff, with the points remaining the same. Generally, it's a two-point buff, so that helps make the ships a little bit more durable, where they were the lowest Citadel fleet in the game. There are a couple small points balance updates. The Oleg Monitor has gone from 60 to 62, And the Rorik Frigate has gone from 20 to 21, with the additional change that you can have up to 7 Ruriks in a unit rather than the previous 8. That's still more than other fleets get, though. Now let's move on to talk about the new ships. First of all, we'll look at the Katanga, Cryo Assault Cruiser. 
We had an early version of this in the previous Orbat for 151 points. The new version is 160 points. It now features a rocket battery in the front instead of a gun battery. And it's got uh, an extra point of submerged defense and an extra point of fray. Still, 160 points is a tough pill to swallow. The closest other ship that you would look at near this would be the Norilsk. The Norilsk comes in at 110. So you're paying 50 extra points. You're getting rocket battery instead of a gun battery. You're getting the drill, which of course is very nice. You're getting the cryo generator. But your broadsides are dropping from a heavy broadside to a regular broadside. And that's kind of disappointing right there. It's tricky to get good use out of the cryo generator. You're almost always going to get something out of it. But you're usually going to get one inch, and the range is uncertain. And plus, it's just not clear how to use them to best effect yet. You can't place them within five inches of another model, so you can't put an iceberg directly in front of somebody to block them. It seems like the intended use is to try to predict ahead of time where your opponent's ships are going to want to go, and then seal off those areas. Now, it's not super important whether you've got a one inch or a two inch because you're, you can leave gaps between them. You don't need a solid wall. You just need a wall that's solid enough that ships can't pass through it very well. So you can have an island and then an inch gap and then an iceberg and then an inch gap and another iceberg and then an inch gap. And it doesn't take too many to seal off a passageway. At the time that I'm recording this, I've only had one game so far where I was using a unit of Katangas and uh, on the other side of the board, a unit of Moroscos plus the icebergs created by your Borodinos. And I do not have the hang of it yet. I was able to prevent some movement. I was able to build a bit of a wall in front of a carrier that caused a one-point collision later in the game because they're, they're pretty clunky. But overall... I can't say that the cryo generator is, is worth a ton, especially when you're losing your heavy broadside that was a really nice thing in the Norilsk. The best thing about the Katanga, though, is the giant drill. It does massive damage when you can run into things. You get plus 12 dice on your ram, and it has piercing, and even though it's difficult to use, the Katanga also has hammer sweep, which is worth plus 2 dice, and if it's in a battle fleet with the Borodino and you get that bonus, you get one extra die in there when you activate Hammer Suite. It's not much. I know a lot of people are going to say that nobody's dumb enough to stand right in front of one of these so that you can hit it without having to turn at all. And there's something to that. Yeah, they're, they're not going to willingly put their best targets there. Just like we were talking about the cryo generator, if you need to use your maximum speed, then you need to predict where your opponent is going to move. There's a lot of situations where you know your opponent is going to come around on the right side of this island because that's the only reasonable place they can go to get to the target that they're going to want to shoot at. So you don't end an activation with a Katanga pointing at a target all the time. You point it where that target's going to be and then they have a choice. Do they want to go in front of the Katanga or do they want to have their plans messed with? Now, the other thing that you can, of course, do is try to get the initiative on a turn. Line up your Katanga with something that's already activated, win initiative the next turn, and then go with the Katangas first. And that's a way that you can do some massive damage without having to worry that your opponent is going to get out of the way. 
as long as you can win the initiative. That's going to depend on what you've got in your hand. If you're holding a really high card, you know, there's a good chance of that. Now, because the Katanga really wants to use that drill ram, it really doesn't so much want to turn broadsides and make use of its aft guns. That's just kind of the way it is. It's part of being a ramship. What that means is you may want to consider replacing the rear guns with some kind of generator. That could be a shield or shroud generator to make the ship more durable and help it survive to get in there. Or I would consider the Fury Generator. The Fury Generator is cheap. It's only three points. It's going to help you move faster, which is very good for a ramming ship. And it's going to up your fray by three. The Katanga already has a pretty good fray of 10, so that's going to bring you up to a 13. About as good as you're going to get if you're not playing Imperium. And you might be able to do some bonus damage in boarding assaults. That's a part of the game that I probably need to start emphasizing more and getting more use out of. But boarding assaults can be a good source of doing some extra damage if your ships have a good enough fray value. Now, the Morosco is basically, it's like the Katanga without the drill. It's 20 less points, so 140. And instead of coming with a dedicated rocket battery in the front, you have the choice You can take a rocket battery or a gun battery, and either version is the same cost. When you open your box that these ships come in, you're going to get uh, a long front deck, and you're going to get a rocket battery turret that can stick in there. There is no gun battery on a peg that can go into this, so you've got a couple of options. If you want to build your ship with a dedicated gun battery, then you should be able to use the front deck that came with your Norilsk. It's the same dimensions. You can put that in there and it should fit. If you're feeling a little more ambitious, you can take your front deck from the Norilsk. You can cut out just the gun battery from that and maybe put it on your own peg, whether it's a spare peg for one of the rocket batteries or or just anything or, or magnet or whatever, and you could make a swappable version. It depends just how much trouble you want to go into and which one of the two turret types that you prefer. I'm not sure that I'm going to go to too much trouble with that. For one thing, I really think I prefer the Katanga. If I'm going to be paying this much anyway, I want that big drill. That's something that's very scary, and it's going to make your opponent concentrate on that thing to bring it down. Remember, unlike your other weapons, the drill does not get worse when you are crippled. So even if your ship is on its very last point, it is still a huge, huge threat to your opponent. And that, to me, is worth the 20 points every time. Also, another minor difference, uh, the Katanga has one extra fray and one extra submerged defense compared to the Morosco. If you're building ships out of this box, I would build Katangas first before you build Moroscos. Either one is still arguably overpriced at the moment, but uh, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Okay, so... We've all been wondering what the Acronoplan does for a long time, since we've seen the artwork forever. It's basically a cruiser-ish size. They're 85 points each, and you can have two to four in a unit. So a full unit is 340 points. Now the thing is, it's a lot more fragile than a regular cruiser. There's only four total hull in a 2 plus 2 configuration, compared to, for example, 4 plus 3, out of the same costed Kutsov. So you've got to worry about that. It has two heavy rocket batteries, forward arc only, 
and a regular rocket battery that's turreted front and side. It can put out a lot of damage linking these together, especially since rockets just got an extra die buff in this release. It does not have the ablative armor that most of our ships have, further contributing to its glass cannon status. It has a special ability called Caspian Overthruster. This says that if you don't turn, you can increase your speed by 6 inches, and if you move at least 13 inches, then your heavy rocket batteries, but not the little rocket battery, gain the high velocity quality. You can't use it if you're crippled. The extra speed may come in handy sometimes. High velocity is unimpressive. If your opponent has six aerial defense, then high velocity is worth an extra hit. I almost always try to use aerial weapons on people who have less defense than that. I'm looking for like a three or something where it would be worth half of an extra hit. And finally, it has skimming unit. The skimming rule allows the Acronoplon to move over models and terrain, but it can't end moving on top of them. This is actually very valuable as it makes it easier to get the jump on enemy ships by hiding behind terrain. Then at the appropriate time, you can move out and fire. The difficulty is survivability afterward. I think some of your best shots are to go very late in the turn, then try to win initiative and activate the Acronoplons again so they can move away and fire, maybe using their speed to get out of arc of a lot of the enemy fleet. The other thing you can do is maybe some kind of a heavy attack all on one flank. Try to put all your attacks in that area so that the ships that would normally destroy your Acronoplons in a counterattack are crippled or sunk. You're protecting them by killing everything in the vicinity, basically. So what you kind of need to do to set this up is go with your other ships first, try to clear out most of the area, and then activate your Acronoplons last to come in and deal the finishing blow. Even though the Acronoplons seem to be maybe overcosted right now, something else to note is that when people talk about the Acronoplons being fragile, I think more of what they mean is fragile for their cost. These are aircraft, they're not ships, so I think it's entirely appropriate that they can't carry as much armor and, and that they're therefore more fragile. So along that line of thinking, I would much rather see them get a price drop than see them get armored up so that they act like they're flying cruisers. Additionally, I think I'd like to see the Battlefleet bonus go back to two units instead of two max units to make it a little more practical to try and get the Battlefleet bonus with the Moseski. If you add up the points of eight Acronoplons plus the Moseski itself, that's 920 points. So... Out of a standard 1,500-point game, that's really a huge chunk of your fleet. And it's going to significantly limit what else you can try to put in there. So I've played one game with the Stolotov Acronoplons, a single unit of four. The first thing you need to do is figure out how to not get them shot at before they get to attack. This is somewhat mitigated by their high speed. Even without using the overthruster, they're a speed 10. But they are clumsy. They have a turn limit of three, so you're not going to be doing a lot of turning. What I was trying in this game is I put them off on a flank and kind of had them hidden behind an island so that they could jump out and shoot. And that seems to work okay. I think using them as a reserve unit may be the way to go. I haven't gotten a chance to test it yet. But once they get that big hit off, 
do not expect them to stay around. They're going to sink or they're going to get crippled. And once they're crippled, they've lost a lot of their output. So your opponent doesn't necessarily have to kill them all. What I would like to do is see some kind of a point drop on these to reflect their fragility and to make it so that it's actually feasible to get the Mosaiski Battle Fleet bonus. If you have to take eight of these things, plus you have to take a fleet carrier, that's almost a thousand points right there. We'll see what happens with these as people start playing with them and giving feedback, whether they need some form of adjustment. And along those lines, there has been a further buff to the Cineus Fast Cruiser. This is a ship that's been underwhelming, and this is the second buff they've done to it. They've dropped the cost to 80 points instead of 85 and given it an added ability, full steam ahead. During its activation, this unit may increase its speed by two inches, provided that it makes no turns during this movement. I don't know whether this is going to be enough for it to see use. The biggest thing that has always kind of killed it for me is the armor four. That just makes it way too easy to damage. We'll see. It's getting to the point where I feel like it's worth a try. But really, in another sense, the most important takeaway here is the insight that it gives us into War Cradle's design philosophy. I really get the feeling that they want most of the ships to be viable. They want people to be able to play with whatever they want, and they seem like they are trying to take feedback from the community and improve the ships that are consistently falling below that line where people are reluctant to take them. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future that we're going to end up with a game that is well-balanced and people can take a wide variety of different things. So I really want to encourage people, if you think something's not worthwhile, post feedback online, say what you don't like about it, why you think it's not good. If you think something's too strong, post about that too. And adjustments are going to be made. The people I've talked to that are war hosts who have been with this company for an extended time with Wild West Exodus, they're telling me the same thing, that they went through similar processes when the company took over that game, and things get fixed, and things get improved, and things get better balanced. I want that to happen here, too. Now, as if all these changes to the Commonwealth were not enough, the very next day, hot on the heels of that Orbat update, we get a big drop for the Imperium. And it has massive changes all over the place. Now, I have to admit, I don't play Imperium myself, and I've only had limited battles against them. But what I've heard from people is that they were probably the weakest of the factions that were out so far. And I can say that when I've looked at the Imperium Orbat, particularly at the flagships, I've had a hard time looking at that and saying, man, I want to field this flagship. A lot of them seemed a little overpriced. Their weapon layouts were sort of jumbly. And I think that War Cradle's taken this to heart and tried to make everything a lot more attractive. Plus, there's a bunch of new classes in here. It's, it's really honestly making me kind of jealous as a Commonwealth player because they've got more stuff than we do. So... Let's go ahead and take a look. Starting from the front of the Orbat, Blitz and Bombers have been buffed from three dice to four. Originally, people were saying that there's no reason to take the Blitzens because you're losing too many dice. Now that they're getting four dice each, you have the same number of attack dice whether you're using the standard SRS or the special SRS Blitzens. So 
Now it's a real question of which one you prefer. You are losing piercing, but you're gaining bomb and you're gaining voltaic. Bomb ignores shields, so if you're fighting against somebody who uses a lot of shields, like the Enlightened, that could be a big thing. And Voltaic's got a a few perks. You don't get to use Inductorium, but you get some of the other benefits out of it. There's also been a new sort of flavor ability added to them, Disciplined, which allows them to ignore the effects of the emergency disorder condition. So they still have the token, they just don't take the ill effects from it. And that's pretty nice. You know, it makes their guys feel like they're all really brave and stuff. Now, related to the Blitzens, there's another new rule here called Lightning Raid. And this is pretty much just like what the Enlightened have. You get a free stack of Blitzen bombers at the beginning of the game that you can use, you know, to make an attack on turn one. And if you have spare points, you can buy extra blitz and bombers to go into this stack. So it's just like they do with the whales. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time you know, on every little detail. You can read about it. But uh, it's fun and it's flavorful, and it means that you're going to be using your blitz and tokens more often. There's a new piece of equipment called the Freya Array. It gives you a bigger coherency, so now you have to be just within six inches. And also counts for plus one aerial defense value, which is nice. Furthermore, there's been a lot of updates on their weapon table. Their heavy rocket battery has been buffed up exactly the same as Commonwealth, leading me to believe that this is going to be the standard heavy rocket uh, stat line from now on. They've had some name changes, so their voltaic weapons are now called Volt, Volt Broadside, Volt Gun Battery, so on. And by the way, your broadsides are now voltaic, where they weren't before. Congratulations. And your flak is voltaic. Pretty much everything's getting pretty voltaic over there. There's also a miniature version of the Sturmbringer called the Sturmklau. It's a lot less dice, but, you know, it's a nice little bonus weapon. It seems like in many cases it's a fixed front kind of weapon, and I'm wondering if that's a little bit inspired to be an equivalent of the Huaqiang on the Empire ships. We'll see how this goes. We haven't seen the models with these yet. So a lot of the flagships that were previously a little overpriced or a little awkward have seen point drops. In some cases, big point drops. An Elector battleship was 255. Now it's 220. So that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. Plus, it's picked up the extra disciplined rule. Additionally, a number of the battleships have gained plus one speed. Something else that I want to point out is that with more of the weapons getting the voltaic quality, this dovetails very nicely into the lightning assault rule and effectively is giving all the battleships higher fray values than what they had before. In some cases, really, really high fray values. So... I think we're going to see a little bit of a shift with the Imperium to emphasize close combat and assault. The different Ice Maiden classes have also seen additional weapons just get added on to them, and those are Voltaic weapons as well. So they're getting more guns, and if somebody ever gets close to your carrier, you can board them and just crush their ship like a bug. And if somehow the two Ice Maiden classes that you had before weren't big enough and bad enough for you, We now have a new name variant, the SMS Princessin Wilhelmina. 600 points, and it looks like a monster. There are six 
heavy volt gun batteries mounted to the front, four flak fearlings, some regular volt gun batteries. It's got the Freya array. It's got, you know, all the other special abilities that, that come with the carriers. It's got, you know, a lot of SRS. It's just completely ridiculous. Now, Stuart has shown online a picture of an Ice Maiden model of some sort. So it looks like they're working on that and they're going to release it when they can, when it's ready. I don't know what it's going to be made out of. It's going to be huge. It's probably going to be pretty expensive. And personally, I'm expecting it to probably be in a special box by itself. It's already going to be big enough without trying to pack other ships in with it. This is going to be one of those things that I think not everybody wants one. But if you do get it, it's going to be a real showpiece in your collection. Now, we touched a little bit on SRS when we talked about the Blitzen. So let's take just a second for the Tempelhof and Tempelhof Blitzen fleet carriers. They did not go down in cost. They're still 255 and 260 respectively. But they both got a plus one speed bump. They both got a little bit more aerial defense because they, they both got a free Freya array added onto them. And the Tempelhof Blitzen is an actual choice now because the Blitzens are no longer disappointing. The big question I think going on right now is just how good are carriers in general? The feeling that I get on the forum is that people find them a little bit subpar, but I'm also not sure how much people have actually been using them. I've had a few games with carriers and I'm still a bit on the fence. I I think they could probably stand to come down a little bit, but now that the models are actually coming out, I think we're going to see a lot more use and therefore a lot more usable feedback from people to figure out where they need to be. Incidentally, in most cases, I think I'm favoring fleet carriers over the support carriers, with the primary reason being that they seem to have a better sustain. They've got more durability, and they only start losing effectiveness when they get to 50%, you know, when you get to that crippled level, where if you take the support carriers, they're losing effectiveness in smaller increments in a little bit more continuous fashion because you don't have to take off as much health and their stats are lower. So you don't get to keep the full effectiveness as long, just getting chipped away and chipped away, something more like that. There are benefits to taking the support carriers. They're a lot easier to hide, for instance, and there's more potential for your opponent to waste hits and overkill. But that's just kind of, you know, a brief comparison of my thoughts on the two. Moving along, we'll talk about the first Scandinavian ship in this uh, Orbat, the Ragnarok Heavy Reaver. They've changed the name, dropped the points, made it faster, and given it a new trait, Aggressive Crew. While making an assault, this unit may re-roll blank dice results. Now, moving on to the smaller ships, we again see some points adjustments and also a number of new classes, including quite a few new Scandinavian classes that leads me to believe there's probably going to be a Ragnarok Battlefleet set on the horizon that will come with a Ragnarok and some of these smaller Scandinavian ships packaged together. So let's just take a quick look through some of these. The Augustus Bombardment Cruiser has dropped five points and picked up Discipline, so it's 115 now. I also noticed that the Augustus has been updated from a 1-2 to two ship unit into a 1-3 to three ship unit, which is a nice improvement since it gives you more linking flexibility. The Blitcher has actually gone up from 85 to 90. I had actually used it a little bit and found it very effective with two front guns, allowing you to come up and shoot a lot as you approached. 
It picked up disciplined and also has voltaic broadside instead of regular broadside, so that also helps justify the slight increase. Now, I was talking about how fleet carriers are usually preferred over support carriers. One exception to that here may be the Conrad support carrier because it has dropped from 130 to 120 points while picking up discipline, while picking up voltaic on its broadside. And at that price, it seems like this might be kind of an exception to the rule because it's just such a bargain. We'll see how that goes when the model gets in people's hands. Now, the next Scandinavian ship here is the Odin Reaver. This is a cruiser-sized class. It's 90 points. It has a front storm clow, a heavy volt gun battery, and a voltaic broadsides. You get aggressive crew, you get full steam ahead, and you get vanguard, and it's a speed 10. So this falls into a fast cruiser kind of category. You're getting all this extra movement, and you're getting aggressive crew, so I think this is positioned to try and rush up, use that band one only storm cloud, and board people in a boarding assault. You have a fray of nine, which is pretty good, and you're carrying three voltaic weapons, which bumps it up to a 12, which now is very, very good for 90 points. I think we'll see some Odins running around for people that want to emphasize an assault-based strategy. Right now, I think my pick for best new ship just might be the Ryder Flat Cruiser. It's 110 points, regular cruiserish stats. The main thing that it has is four flak veerlings, and you can use them all together. Three of them are front and side, and one of them's a 360. You get those, you get voltaic broadside, and you get the spear slender, which is their voltaic form of a torpedo. And those weapons, you know, take or leave, whatever. But having four flak veerlings, which has the sustained ability and links very efficiently, it's five dice or four for linking, and then whatever you get, multiply it by one and a half to account for sustained. You're going to do a ton of damage on this, and your small voltaic weapons, your broadside and your spear slender, they don't even have to do damage because it, you can use them with inductorium, and if you roll any extra exploding hits from those, and it's not going to be enough to do damage, you can donate those into the flak veerling attacks, which, by the way, upgrades that from a regular extra die to an extra die with sustained. So you're getting all kinds of offensive bargains with this ship. I would not be surprised to see this cruiser increase a little bit in cost, but we'll see what happens. The next class we have here is the Toten Heavy Destroyer. This is a, a little bit heftier version of the Sigamer that we already had. So while the Sigamer is 96 points for three, this is 120 points for three, or 40 points a model. You get dual storm clouds and a light voltaic broadside. And in place of the Sigamer's Pack Hunter, you instead get Giant Slayer. It's a little bit more durable with an armor 5 instead of armor 4. So at some point, somebody's going to have to crunch some numbers and see which one that you prefer. Completely untested gut instinct is I think I still prefer the Sigimer in this case. We have another Scandinavian ship here, the Valkyrie Raider. You get 3 for 75. It's very fast at speed 13, and it has a turn limit of 10. So why is it so crazy fast and agile? Oh yeah, 
it flies. So this is the first real flying unit that we've seen that's not just a skimmer. You get one flak verlaine and you get one storm cloud. Both are fixed front weapons, but with a turn limit of 10 and that much speed, it really doesn't matter. You can just do donuts around a couple times and then aim it. It also has the agile quality, which says unless you have a navigation lock, you can make turns during your drift movement. So you don't even have to go forward with that if you don't want to. And it has aggressive crew. Now there's only a fray of six, except that you can have a lot of them. A unit of these can be up to eight models. You get a plus two for each other ship if they combine. So you could get a total fray of 20. If you have them all assault together, that's that's pretty beefy. 20 with re-rolling blanks. So watch out for that. This seems like something that you want to take down before it gets too close. And finally, last is the Volsung Strike Cruiser. Coming in at 115 points. Now, we've seen this ship. This was in the pictures of the Tempelhof Battlefleet box. There was a cruiser there with a Sturmbringer on the front. We talked about it in the last episode, I think. Anyway, this is the one, the Volsung. It has the Sturmbringer. It has a 360-degree flak verling, which, again, is nice because it links super efficiently, and it has sustained. It has the Voltaic broadside. It has the Spear Slender. And like most cruisers, this is a one to three unit. So, wow. This is a massive amount of new stuff for Imperium players. It's going to be making them very happy. This is a really good time to be an Imperium player. And I'm really trying to resist because I don't want to pick up another faction. So that's all the talking about new ships and updates for now. Unless, of course, Warcry puts out another new Orbat PDF. And I have to eat my words and, well... Hopefully that's going to happen because that would be really, really awesome. We're still waiting to see that Sultanate preview. And we've got a number of factions that could be potentially upgraded from a preview or bat to a full one or who knows. Now, it seems like things are gradually, finally improving with COVID. At some point, we're going to start seeing more people getting back to gaming in person. I thought this might be a good time to talk about building a community. And maybe thinking about this and getting a little bit of a jump on it now can help put you in a good position. When people come back, they're going to look around and see what communities are already established. And if you can do that work ahead of time and already have two or three or four guys playing Dystopian Wars, that puts you in a more attractive position to recruit the people that are coming back and maybe fairly open about what they want to play. So first, make sure you advertise your game group. Most stores have some kind of social media. Advertise in advance. Be reliable. Show up at the appointed night and the appointed time. Get there a little early to set up. Make sure you claim a table. Get the terrain and everything set out ahead of time so that when people show up, you're ready to go. And again, be reliable. If you say that you guys meet Thursdays at 7, you want to be there every Thursday. The fastest way to convince people that your game group is not viable is for them to show up wanting to play and nobody's there. Try to schedule it on a quiet night. Don't try to go head-to-head against the biggest, most popular games. And try to make the game look good. Paint your fleets. If your fleets aren't painted yet, wait and don't hold the demo until you paint them. You need some sort of a water game mat or a blue tarp that you picked up at Home Depot or some fabric or something, anything blue. 
Make sure that you've got a little terrain on the board. Get some islands out there, whatever they look like. They can be hills from your 28 millimeter land games. You can put some rocks out there. Something so there's a little bit of variety. Honestly, terrain is not a strong suit for naval games, so do what you can. If you've got some hills, you might be able to dress them up a little bit. Put some tiny little buildings on them. You know, Get the hotels and houses out of a Monopoly set and paint them to look like cottages. Get a sheet of sandpaper. Cut it out a little bit bigger than the island and put it on there so you've got a, about a half a centimeter beach that goes around the edges. Immediately, it looks a little bit better. Have everything neatly laid out and ready to go. Maybe make a sign for your table telling everybody, hey, we're giving demos. This is Dystopian Wars. You're welcome to come up and ask questions. Make sure that you have enough stat cards, reference sheets, dice, tokens, measuring tapes, and turning templates for both players. This is going to help the game run smoothly if you're not constantly having to pass stuff back and forth. Bring the current Orbat printed out for all factions not just the ones you play. If somebody wants to join up and they're interested in a different faction, you want to whip that out and you want to talk about it. It's like, yeah, look at this. This is what Empire does. This is what Imperium does. Whatever the fleet is. Make a little one-page handout that people can take home. It's going to include your contact information, what day and what time you meet, information about the game, some webpage URLs that they can go to. You know, just something that helps keep their interest that they can look out later, remember what a good time they had at the demo, and help them take that next step. Also, a lot of people are not accustomed to playing games with cards, and they may not understand how to use them well. I would recommend playing with the cards open. That way you can help them with their card play, and you can point out when they can do something advantageous, and that's going to make them enjoy the game more. Try to keep your demo games small. I kind of made some starter fleets for every faction out of the starter box. It seems like they fall in around 525 points if you're trying to keep all of them equal. And I'm just going to read these off real quick if you want to steal them. So for Commonwealth at 519 points, at Borodino, two Norilsks, four Ruriks. Enlightened at 525. Hypatia with Atomic Repulsion and Shroud, two Loveless, four Marians. Imperium at 532. An SMS Turpitz or Holzendorf battleship. They're both the same cost. Two Blitchers for Arminius. For Empire at 528. A Ninjing, two Jian Cruisers, four Shanghais. For Crown at 529. A Britannia heavy battleship, two Albions, and three Caliburn frigates because the Britannia is so expensive. For Union at 528. Constitution, two Yorktowns, four Farragut frigates. For Alliance at 534, an Oriflamme battlecruiser, two Chevalier cruisers with heat lances, and four Ecuyer frigates. This one's a little bit wonky because the Oriflamme is a battle cruiser rather than a battleship, so the only way to really make up for that was to add the heat lances. Sultanate, of course, we don't have an Orbat yet, but at least this will give you a starting point, and all of these are buildable from the box set from the starter. Now, at the end of the last episode, I mentioned that I wanted to start doing some cross-faction ship shootouts. What I wasn't expecting was having two big Orbat updates back-to-back. So most of this episode has gone towards covering that. Consequently, I've decided to start with a relatively limited class of ships that we can cover in a little bit less time. So we're going to do fleet carriers. Now when comparing these, I'm mostly taking into account the points cost, the durability, 
and what sort of weaponry or possibly special rules they have. For the most part, they tend to have the same amount of SRS tokens, so that's kind of taken out of the comparison. The ships we have here in contention are the Commonwealth Moseiski, the Imperium Templehof, the Empire Hachiman, and then looking forward, we have the Alliance Coron, Union Enterprise, and the Crown Victory. Those last two cost considerably more points, and I'm only going to mention them minimally. I, I don't feel that they're really a straight-up comparison. Now, when we look at the weaponry on the different fleet carriers, the most common thing you'll see is that a ship will either have three times regular rocket batteries, or they'll have a single heavy rocket battery. Now, if you assume that you're linking the three rocket batteries together, that's going to give you 13 dice healthy or eight crippled, with the limitation that you cannot link them if your target is within zero to 10 inches. Now, personally, I'm not considering that to be a significant flaw. If there's something that's within zero to 10 inches, you simply shoot at something else. Chances are it's not just your fleet carrier and that enemy ship being the only things on the table. So, yeah, I don't see it as a big deal. The heavy rocket battery has 10 dice healthy and 6 crippled, so it's really not as good. You've got 3 dice less when you're healthy and 2 dice less when you're crippled. The only real advantages are that you have no loss of efficiency in 0 to 10 inches and no loss of efficiency if you are unable to link with yourself, which only happens if you have the highest level of disorder on the ship. Now, the Imperium uses three Flakvierlings instead of three rocket batteries. The Flakvierlings do not have compatible arcs. You can't link all three of them together. You can only link two, and then one is firing by itself, but as an aerial weapon firing alone, it may or may not really do too much. Linking them together, you get nine dice or five crippled. However, because it has sustained attack, which is a 1.5 multiplier, that is effectively 13.5 and 7.5 crippled. This is almost exactly the same as the three rocket batteries. And it does have Voltaic, which is a nice perk. However, it only works from 0 to 20 inches, which means that you're going to miss out on some early game shots. And consequently, I consider the three rocket batteries to be a little bit better. So, how do the different ships compare against each other? My least favorite, I think, is the Imperium Tempelhof. It did just get a minor boost with plus one speed, but I don't consider that very important for a fleet carrier. And it got the Disciplined Crew, which is also not really a big deal. Like I said, the triple Flakvierlings is not quite as good as the triple Rocket Battery. It costs 15 points more than the Moseiski, and it's got a 10 Citadel, where other ships have a 12 or 13. For these reasons, I'm counting the Templehof as the, the lowest. The next one up, I would say, is the Commonwealth Moseiski, mostly for its cheap price. It doesn't have anything special. It doesn't have, you know, a lot of abilities. But you're getting the favored triple rocket battery for only 240 points, which is the cheapest of all the fleet carriers. And the durability is pretty good. You're looking at a 6-armor, 12-citadel. It does only have 11 hull, but it has ablative armor, and the hull is front-loaded in a 6-5 configuration. So I consider hull when you're healthy to be worth more than hull when you're crippled. The next level up for me is the Alliance Corone. 
It's only 250 points, so not very much more. It is fragile. That's the big thing that you have to deal with, is only having 10 hull instead of 11 or 12. So what's useful about this ship? Mainly that it has a lot of weapons. You've got a heavy rocket battery, and you've also got two torpedo turrets. So they have the typical 270-degree arc of most turrets, and pretty good dice. Torpedoes are a 7-5, so linking them together gives you a 12-8. You've got pretty much double the weaponry of the other fleet carriers. And that, to me, makes this ship feel like it's going to be more relevant, since it can put out considerably more damage. Finally, my favorite of the fleet carriers is the Empire Hachiman. It is a little more expensive at 270 points, but it's even more heavily armed. You have the triple rocket battery. You've got heavy torpedoes, which are pretty equivalent to a pair of torpedoes linked. And then also it has heavy broadside, where the other ships mentioned all have normal broadside. This gives it a lot more punch, and it also has some very useful special abilities. Shroud Generator ups its durability. Mark of Yama gives you the potential that your rockets are going to do more damage. And Shadow Hunter secures a favorable deployment. And that's why I'm considering the Hachiman to be the winner in this shootout. Now, if we were to look at the Union and Crown, they're both more points and have 10 planes instead of 8. They're also both very slow, which further makes them difficult to compare. But they have good durability. Because of these many differences, I didn't really want to cover them fully. Maybe we'll look at them in the future. The other thing is, since both Union and Crown are small preview orbats, I'm kind of considering these to be a little bit beta. I realize that that should kind of apply to the Alliance Corone as well, but since it's a much closer fit to the other ships, I thought maybe it was worth including. Now that I've found a little more time to go over the changes, let's talk about the different Imperium battleships what they do, how they've been adjusted, and a little bit of my first impressions on them. Now, keep in mind that I'm not normally an Imperium player. I usually play Commonwealth, and I'm starting Empire. But hopefully these observations will have some value. First up is the Elector. It's 220 points, which is 35 points lower. It has a front Bombard and Speerslunder two 270-degree rear heavy bolt guns, heavy bolt broadsides, and the storm generator. So basically, to get the most use out of it, this is a ship that wants to move up diagonally to make use of all of its weapons and probably try to stay around the 20-inch mark. This isn't necessarily easy to do, but if you can manage it, it should perform well. You definitely want to trigger the storm generator as often as possible to get obscured. The SMS Brandenburg was reduced 5 points to 280. Forward aft bombards are very hard to make use of, even though they have phosphor rounds, and it doesn't have any turrets. Honestly, it seems like an awkward ship and a high price, making it my least favorite of the Imperium options. The SMS Turpets went down 10 points to 260. You can think of it as a backwards elector, with the Volt guns in front and the bombard in back. It's a lot easier to drive, but the Bombard will mostly only see use against fast frigates flanking your rear ships. To emphasize its forward nature, you get elite crew for more effective boarding assaults, and also heavier torpedoes. It seems like a reasonable choice, but you can't swap the Bombard for a generator, as you would probably want to. Between the three ships in this family of similar classes, I feel like I'm leaning towards the Turpits as my favorite, 
but I wouldn't feel bad dropping down to an elector if I needed the points somewhere else, and 40 points is a significant difference. Next up, I wanted to discuss the logistics family of battleships. You have two options here. The Heidelberg Logistics Battlecruiser was reduced 5 points to 220. It's a little like a light turpitz. You have the regular torpedoes and crew, one less hull, one less citadel and fray, and you swap your rear bombard for an extra card each turn and a 40-point discount. The other option is the SMS Holzendorf. It's still at its same cost of 260, and it's kind of a long-range version of the Heidelberg, dropping the two heavy bolt guns for a phosphor bombard and bigger torpedoes. Since both of these are lighter ships that you probably want to keep back, having these sort of weapons makes a lot of sense, provided you can afford the extra 40 points. Personally, I feel like I prefer the Holzendorf over the Heidelberg because it can contribute more to the battle while remaining at a safe distance and preserving your card advantage. The final two ships are kind of one-offs that, that don't really resemble the others. First, for 300 points, we have the Kaiser Heavy Battleship. It was reduced 5 points, but one of its four heavy bolt guns was changed to aft only. It also features heavy broadsides and heavy torpedoes. If you want to run a Kaiser, I would consider swapping the aft gun for a shield generator. A shroud would be redundant since you have an internal storm generator already. It's really not as good as it used to be with four turreted guns, but I think it's probably still viable. I haven't gotten to try it yet, and it's also fairly easy to drive. Our final ship is the 240-point Ragnarok Heavy Reaver. This went up five points, but also got buffed. Seems to be meant as a short-range assault ship. You have a Sturmbringer and two front-heavy Volt gun turrets, but only regular broadside. You also get aggressive crew for better boarding assaults, and a Fury Generator, which boosts your speed and your boarding. This seems to be a ship destined for a short life of glory. Expect it to be a firepower magnet, and take advantage of that with the rest of your fleet getting off a little lighter. So I would probably pair it with other ships that also want to move forward to get the most out of it. Remember, it's not all about firepower. It's more about what role you want the ship to play in your fleet. Does it fit into your overall strategy and where you want that ship to go? That's all I have for today, and I hope to see you again next episode when we'll discuss some basic tactics, my experiences with the new ships after having played more games with them, another ship shootout, and more.